And so ends the reading, John 3, 1 to 21, today's message, a saved world. So this passage of scripture that we are considering this morning contains two of the most famous verses, I suppose, in all of our Bibles. John 3, 3, one must be born again. And John 3, 16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as with so much else which with we have become overly familiar, if I can use that phrase, many of us have never even come close to understanding and comprehending what we are told in those two verses. Why, even the title of the message, A Saved World, contains ideas and concepts that would be confusing to a lot of people. What do you mean the world is saved? How would you react if I told you that there's something that you need to do to save your life, but the very thing that you need to do is completely impossible for you. Would you think that such advice was totally useless since I'm telling you to do the impossible? Well, today, I would like for us to focus on these two familiar verses or parts of John 3, and because there are those two parts, we are going to talk about two points, two important facts that we glean from these verses. First is that we can see here that God's love for us is seen in his doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, what we individually could never do for ourselves. Now, at the close of chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus did signs and wonders during his time at the Passover, and he wrote that many people followed Jesus because they witnessed those things, but they were not sincere in their motivation. And we talked about, as you recall, the right and wrong reasons for believing in Jesus. We talked about that. And as John 2, 24 to 25 says, most of the people who began to believe Jesus were believing for the wrong reasons. But now it appears in John chapter 3, this man Nicodemus might be an exception. He apparently is one of those who saw Jesus during this time of the Passover, and he has become a little more than just intrigued by him. And so he goes to Jesus by night to find out a bit more about him. Now, there are a lot of theories about why he went by night. Probably one reason is he knew Jesus would have more of an opportunity to be spoken to at that period. And we note further that this man, Nicodemus, was a learned scholar, a teacher among the Jews. He was a man who knew his Bible, we might say. And so he comes to Jesus and he greets him as a rabbi, and he acknowledges that his power must be from God. And thus we come to know that Nicodemus has seen these signs and wonders that Jesus did. Now, friends, I want you to notice that this is all Nicodemus has done to this point. He's made, I guess what you call a, a polite greeting to the mysterious Jesus of Nazareth. He's asked him no questions. He's broached no deep topics of ultimate concern. He simply said a, a polite, somewhat prolonged hello. And Jesus then floors him with this stunning statement in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again. And notice that phraseology. 
He said, I'm telling you, unless a person, unless one is born again, he cannot see. Notice what he says. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He does not say, unless one is born again, he can't get to heaven. He did not even say, unless you get born again, you cannot see heaven. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So just out of the blue, Jesus hits him with this declaration, and we already know why, don't we? We learned in chapter 2, 24 to 25, that Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows what's in the minds and hearts of people. He knows that Nicodemus has come searching perhaps for some validation, some confirmation that he and his fellow rabbis are on the right paths to God. And that phrase, that one must be born again, has come to mean in the popular mind, it's come to mean, well, you must answer that altar call. You, you must have that high-powered, gut-wrenching, emotional experience of God in order to become a Christian. And you walk down the aisle of the church, and in the process of doing all of that, you thereby somehow, in the process, that makes you get born again. You know, for most people in the evangelical and fundamentalist churches, the bottom line in their thinking about being born again, the real point at issue is that to their minds, this whole business is something that you can do. You're doing this. You need to get born again, we tell people. He needs to go to church and get born again, people say about unbelievers. Those things are said as if being born again was simply a matter of a person deciding to do something. Making up their minds to have this experience, in other words, to go out and do what they need to do to have eternal life. And this is the foundation of much modern evangelism, and evangelism as, as it's been practiced in many fundamental evangelical churches for centuries, frankly. And in all of this, let me suggest to you there is a total misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about. It is obvious that Nicodemus didn't have any doubt about what Jesus was telling him to do. Jesus is telling him to do the very thing he simply could not do, become born again. Now, Nicodemus appears to have misunderstood Jesus' use of the idea of physical or biological birth, thinking that he meant it literally. But the whole point of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus is that salvation and deliverance from sin is like being born again physically. A person's spiritual birth into new life in Christ is very much like physical birth into this world. And we had no power or authority to cause our own physical births. We were totally and utterly powerless to do it ourselves. And so it is with being born again into the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that this is beyond our power and ability. It is purely the work of God and His Spirit. This is right in line with what we're told at the very beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, 12, and 13. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, or we might add to that, reborn, born again, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Becoming a child of God is like becoming a child of your parents. You have to be born into the family, and in both cases, 
That was ultimately something that was somebody else's decision. Now, I dare say if you explain this to many of your friends who go to other churches who aren't reformed in their thinking, and then perhaps even sadly some people who claim to be reformed, it sounds strange. It's never been explained that way to them before. Well, if people think that way, they're in good company because Nicodemus had never heard explained that way before either. That's one reason he's so stunned by what Jesus has told him. He can't quite fit this into his religion. I mean, he knows all of the teachings of the scribes, the Talmudic tradition of the Pharisees. He keeps the traditions and the rituals. He's come prepared to discuss and debate with Jesus about all of those things that men can do to better themselves spiritually. But no way is he prepared for this unimagined declaration of the divine Son of God. That the very thing that a holy God requires of people if they are to be saved from their sins is the very thing they, not, they are not capable of doing. And that is why... <clears throat> On another occasion, Jesus made this declaration as recorded in Matthew 19. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it is just here, my friends. It is just here that we see the love of God for us. He not only does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. He does it for us in full knowledge of the fact that we do not deserve it. Now, it may have occurred to us to wonder why we of our own will and power are not capable of saving ourselves. Well, the Bible tells us very clearly in Romans 3, That there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, Paul writes. Every one of us is born into this world in dire need of a spiritual rebirth because of our sinful human nature. We are all, without exception, born into this world tuned to the wrong channel, we might say, And we're powerless to turn ourselves to the right channel. I realize for some people the idea of turning to a channel is a bit dated. It was a time when you had a TV set where you had a dial on it and you literally had to turn the channel. It's hard to imagine you have to explain that to people today, but they don't make TVs like that anymore. So turning to a channel or dialing a channel, keying in a channel, fill in the metaphor. Now, if that was the end of the story, We would be all in very bad shape because of our sinful nature. We are liable to the judgment of God, both in this life and in the world to come. But as we learn from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, this is not, praise God, the end of the story. Because he wrote in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And friend, when you're dead, you can't do anything. You can't cause yourself to be reborn or resurrected. Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit of God can do that, however. And Paul confirmed it when he said, God made us alive. God raised us up all because of the, the, the richness of God's mercy. For his immeasurable love with which he loved us. And who is the us that Paul refers to? Who is he talking about? Well, it's all of us who've been reborn, born from above by the Spirit of God. Out of his great love, the Lord has done this for all who believe in him and trust in him alone for salvation. And the reality of this then leads us to consider the second and final thing, the second point, and that is this. The great immeasurable love of God is seen in that he does for the world what it can never do for itself. And you know, people who have, I'll say, a, a pessimistic view of the overall message of Scripture concerning man and history and the movement and forward movement of God's kingdom, if they have any idea about it at all, they rarely talk about this part of what Jesus says here. Uh, and so the, the statement that God's love is seen that he does for the world what it cannot do for itself, it needs some clarification. And the words that Jesus prompted it, where he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life everlasting. Some of you may recall how in our very first reading we came across this word world in John chapter 1. And we know that this one English word world is pressed into service, so to speak, in our English language to translate three different Greek words that sometimes mean things very different from each other. And, you know, we use the word world in a variety of ways, but it's just that one word. Well, the whole world heard about what happened. Well, there's a world of difference between this and that. If you keep doing that, you're going to be in a world of trouble. So, I mean, these are different ways we, we use that word, that word. But let me tell you, I, I think, based on my understanding of this, what this statement by Jesus does not mean. It does not mean here in this verse that God's love is so great that it is able to extend over the whole of the big, wide world. Now, I'm not saying it, God's love can't do that. I'm just saying in this statement, that's not what he means. No, this statement means, among other things, that God's love is so great that it is able to prevail over God's hatred and abhorrence of sin. And that, you see, is where the love of God is so starkly made visible, in that God could love the world, the world of sinful human beings who are born serving Satan rather than the Lord of glory, and so, the term world here is not used for the expansion of, or the physical boundaries, but rather the intensity of God's love. And let me suggest, friends, that if you, if you remember nothing else about this oft-quoted verse, remember this. Jesus is not saying that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love for God to embrace it all. No, he's saying that the world is so bad but it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. And God loved it when he gave his son for it. The purpose of this passage is to teach us the marvel and the, the wonder of God's 
immeasurable love for a sinful world, not in terms necessarily of quantity, although that plays into it, but especially in terms of quality. And I want you to let that truth and that reality of those words sink in, please. The the love we're talking about here is the love of God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty who accomplishes all things according to his will. This love of his is to the world which altogether is made up of men and women who are by nature sinful and unable to save themselves. His love reaches its goal, and it accomplishes its aim, and it will not stand helpless in the face of any difficulty. That is why God sent his Son into the world to save it. Now, I am not claiming that each and every person who has lived on this earth from the time of Adam to whenever the Lord returns. I'm not saying that each and every person who's lived and died on this earth from the beginning is going to be saved in some universal redemption. We know that from John 3, 18 to 20. We heard it a while ago. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light was coming into the world, but people rejected the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light. So Jesus says that even though the world is going to be saved in him, there are those who, although they will be in the minority, they will nonetheless prefer their sins and wickedness to the grace and mercy of God. See, I believe that our biggest hindrance to really coming to grips, to terms with this, is our own lack of of vision and hope. You know, we read a verse like this, and there's sort of a default automatic position that we filter it through all of the preconceived notions and worn out bits of homespun popular thinking about the state of the world. And we look, say, at the miserable, frankly awful state of our society today, and we conclude from that that in the end the Lord will not save the world. And that really only a few people will be saved and you could probably fit them all into a big football stadium. That is the man-centered pessimistic view that many people have of the power of God. But that is not what the Lord God says. Look again at John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I think that the terminology here in this translation that the world might be saved is a misleading one. It, uh, it comes to us from the, I think, Geneva Bible, maybe the Wycliffe translation and the King James Version, a holdover when that term might had a slightly different nuance and understanding in older English usage than we think of it today. I mean, we think of the word might today, it's like, well, I might be there on time. Yeah, well, it might rain today, like it's something that probably may or may not happen. So I think the better understanding, and there are a few translations that have rendered it this way, is that he sent his son into the world in order to have the world saved through him, in order that the world shall be saved in him. You see, God didn't send his son into the world to simply make salvation a bare possibility. He came into the world to save it, to actually accomplish a definite task and reach a definite goal. The salvation of untold billions of people over the entire face of the earth. And so then today, maybe this is the very day that you, you realize that you need to change your way of thinking about these matters to conform to the truths of God's infallible word. 
Because the word gives us no warrant at all to believe that God sits helplessly by while the world which he created for himself hurdles hopelessly on a path of destruction. Now certainly the world of sinful men is on that path. But that's not God's creation. Or maybe that God is so inept he's only able to snatch with great difficulty here and there a soul from among all those destined to universal destruction. No, the Bible teaches that God governs this world and it's not the other way around. He is leading the world steadily onward to the end which from the beginning he, the sovereign God, had determined its destiny and future. Now I realize how unlikely this may sound to some, especially when You watch the TV news all the time, and that is precisely, I think, the problem for many of us. We base our thinking about the future of this world on what is fed to us from the satanic media and not what is written in the Word of God. Regardless of our limited knowledge of the history of this world, though, the fact is that in God's plan for the ages, in God's view of things, one increasing purpose moves Forward, And that is that this world becomes over time gradually and ever more definitively the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now that progress may be slow. And to our impatient and unbelieving eyes, it may appear to be going in reverse. But we must not forget that it is almighty God who is doing this work, who is building this kingdom. And under his mighty hand, the structure rises as steadily as it does slowly. And in due time, and in God's time, not your time or mine, the building will be finished and the capstone will be set in place, and to our astonished eyes shall be revealed nothing less than a saved world. And I declare to you today on the authority of God's divine word, before you and before your children and theirs, lies not merely the far reaches of the decades and of the centuries to come, but the infinitely capable and vigorous resources of the promise of God Almighty. God has promised from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 that the saints will inherit the earth and that the knowledge and the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Let us pray.